Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler and my business partner, John Stanford and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at 6100 Fairview Road in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Evan Taylor, Senior Vice President at NFP. Evan and his team at NFP specialize in employee benefits, and property casualty insurance for clients all across the United States. Evan started his career with the FBI and has always had an interest in helping people protect themselves from cybersecurity threats. We'll have a great conversation today around all the things that both individuals and families, as well as business centers and companies can do to protect themselves from the increasing risk of cybersecurity threats. We hope you enjoy the show. Our guest today is Evan Taylor, Senior Vice President at NFP, who's going to share with us some advice around cybersecurity and how we can all better protect ourselves in that regard. If you're like me, you know cybersecurity is an increasingly important issue, but you tend to not think about it until something happens. And the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack caught everyone's attention recently. So we thought it was a perfect time for us to have Evan on the show. So Evan, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, we're certainly looking forward to hearing your comments here in just a second, Evan, because I know this is an important topic for a lot of our clients. But before we hear your thoughts on cybersecurity, would you mind sharing with the audience a brief background of your career and how it led to where you are today at NFP? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me. So I started my career after college in the FBI. And around six years, I was in the FBI and I did counterintelligence and cyber investigations. And, you know, during that time, we were seeing a lot of attacks. Really, the, the entire space was morphing. Uh, it was becoming a lot more prevalent issue. And uh, it's not just government entities that were having to deal with threat actors. It was starting to move into private industry and getting a lot more prolific. And so I transi- transitioned out of the government into uh, private industry with BB&T Bank. And for around three years, I managed uh, a number of their corporate security-related sort of facets to the bank. And But in my last several years... With the FBI, I was uh, working with the Strategic Partnership Group, and their whole role was to go out and visit with companies and talk about cybersecurity threats, uh, threats to their intellectual property, threats to their business, and what a lot of the attackers were doing to to compromise a lot of their secrets and, and steal money and steal intellectual property. And so in that time, a lot of folks were asking about cyber liability insurance. And so I I was intrigued, uh, knowing a little bit about breaches, I was intrigued by the fact that you could insure it. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to be in the insurance business and really kind of advising complex businesses about how to insure against this threat. And so I joined NFP in 2016 with two gentlemen that sold their firm to NFP. And my role here, I'm a a producer. So I'm I'm a property and casualty insurance producer in the Southeast. I've kind of got clients from Texas to Florida, up to the Mid-Atlantic, but predominantly in the Carolinas, and doing all sorts of property and casualty-related insurance for middle market, privately held businesses. And so our practice is primarily targeted at that privately held middle market space with uh, really safety is like the critical component. So a lot of manufacturing, construction, warehousing, distribution type businesses. And I've been fortunate enough because of my background where I've been a, a resource for folks internally at NFP to talk specifically about cyber liability insurance and then you know speak on the topic as well within the company and, and out in the community. So it's been a very fun way to apply my background and skills to a, a common problem that companies are facing and, and help them through the issues. So 
Yeah. And I remember, Evan, you and I have known each other for several years. And even back in your FBI days, whether it was then or now at NFP, cybersecurity has continually become a huge risk management issue. And I know that you mentioned that you work with a lot of manufacturing, construction companies. And I would imagine that a decade ago, those companies weren't even thinking about the possibility of having a cyber attack risk. Or And so just talk a little bit about how much that has changed over the last decade with respect to cybersecurity and how it's... Yeah. You used to kind of envision it being an issue for the federal government or maybe large multinational co- uh, companies, but now it's kind of hitting closer to home. So how has that changed in that regard? Yeah, so I think what's interesting is back in the maybe say the 80s, the 90s, predominantly if you heard anything about data breaches, it was really uh, nation states. It was countries that were attacking each other. And so the Russians attacked the the U.S. and the U.S. would hack the Russians and vice versa. And, and it was really military on military and intelligence service hacking intelligence services. And that was really the really the only context that you heard around data breaches. What happened in the 90s and really in the 2000s is when it, it became a lot more prolific. It expanded. I would say China primarily drove that effort and it moved from attacks not only targeting government entities, but actually moving into private industry. And so the attacks, again, primarily driven by the Chinese initially in the 2000s, became exponential, I mean, voluminous, expansive in every industry. And so it increased the exposure to a lot of businesses. And now all of a sudden, the number of attackers uh, that were conducting these attacks, their motives, their intent, their capabilities, the funding that they received, the resources they had at their disposal was really incredible. And so the, the impact was catastrophic and and remains catastrophic and is catastrophic to businesses. And so it then morphed from nation-state attacks, what I would say are are countries launching these attacks. And I would say China, it's it's pretty well documented, has wanted to to build their economy, to build their infrastructure in every industry, to build their intellectual capital and R&D, primarily using data breaches as their primary mechanism um, into European and and U.S.-based businesses. So it's moved not just from nation states to now even organized criminal enterprises. And so a lot of the big attacks that we hear about, like you mentioned, the colonial pipeline attack, these are being um, conducted by organized criminal enterprises. And so like we think about the mob in the 1920s and 10s in the U.S., these are organizations they have, obviously they use breaches to carry out their illegal you know, attacks and to make money. But they have HR groups, they have have accounting groups, they have uh, fluent English speakers that will communicate with the victims and negotiate with them. They have, I mean, they're run like businesses. And so they've become quite, quite profitable for attackers across the globe. And in many countries, there's very little risk to the attacker. You know, we don't have extradition treaties with many countries um, across the across the globe. And so these attackers can really operate in a uh, in a pretty lawless environment and make a fortune. And so, yeah, I mean, you asked, what are the trends that we're seeing? Uh, to maybe give some context, uh, there's an organization, uh, Mandiant, that was purchased by a company FireEye. They really respond to, they're the forensic services firm that responds to a lot of mainstream Fortune 500s, Fortune 100 type companies after data breaches. They've been putting out what are called M-Trend reports since, you know, 2010, maybe, uh, maybe even before that. And so they've logged and tracked with their client companies. How long has an attacker been on the 
the network of this business that we're helping from the time they got in to the time that they were discovered. And in 2011, the average number of days was 416 days. So to put that in reference, a bad guy was on a company, not an individual, a company's network for 416 days on average in 2011 before they ever even knew about it. And in 2019, that had been reduced down to 56 days. But, you know, the devastating impact of a breach that can be conducted, I mean, even in hours, um, can be can be catastrophic. And so we have such a long way to go still. In terms of trends, I think I read the first quarter of this year that 75% of attacks involved ransomware. That's really the, the big buzzword we're hearing on the types of attacks that are being conducted. Every sector is now at risk. It used to just be critical, uh, I would call it critical infrastructure industries, but every sector, I mean, we're seeing nonprofits being hit, publicly traded companies, privately held businesses, manufacturers, construction. I mean, you, you pick the company, it doesn't matter, the industry. And what's interesting is where, where 75% of attacks involve ransomware, 80% of attacks actually exfiltrate data. And so we have a lot of conversations with companies that say, hey, um, our network's locked up, it's encrypted, and they're asking for a hundred grand in, in extortion demand. Okay, well, what if the ransomware attack you're seeing is actually the final blow by the attacker, but they've already stolen all the data that they want to steal. They want it to appear as if it's just a basic ransomware attack and conceal the fact that they've actually stolen all your intellectual property. They've stolen all your corporate emails. They've stolen your customer list. They've stolen pricing sheets. They've stolen all the W-2 data on your employees. Um, and they're just, they're, they're making it appear as it's a ransomware attack, a basic extortion demand um, to conceal the fact that they've, they've led a catastrophic breach for months, months on your network. And so it's getting a lot more complex and the responses that companies have to take and individuals, but companies uh, have to take is, is becoming a lot more complex as well. That's unbelievable. I mean, and even the fact that we've made seems like a, a lot of uh, strides in, in reducing the time that of a breach being discovered from 416 days down to 56 days. It's still, I mean, like over a month and a half on average that they're in your network stealing and using your information against you. That, that's a pretty, uh, eye-opening statistic. And I know that at least on our end, I know that at, at UBS, we have over 50, I think 55 full-time staff members at the firm just focusing on cybersecurity and protecting client information and making sure that's secure. But individually, we will, I would say a couple times a year, I'll get an email from a client that makes zero sense requesting something. And it just seems kind of you know out of the ordinary. And I'll call the client. It turns out they're their email had been had been hacked. So I know that some people, you know, a lot of our clients have anecdotally dealt with stuff like that on an individual level, but, you know, not to keep this up at night or anything, but just, I think it really helps to kind of go over some of the stories that clients experience, especially on the, the company and business side that you've seen, I think can really help create kind of that, that eye-opening effect. So what have been some of the experiences that you've had in that regard with clients that, you know, own businesses and maybe have had a uh, a breach and, and, and how they were able to, to deal with it at the time? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, and I think particularly for folks that own and operate businesses, a lot of this will, will be helpful from to just add some color commentary. So a couple of different examples, um, obviously we'll, we'll not disclose the, the companies, but uh, we have a manufacturer, for instance, they're a, you know, a half billion dollar manufacturer, very large, complex business. They make very expensive steel-based components <clears throat> um, they were breached and unbeknownst to them, the attacker was able to breach their network with a spear phishing email to an employee 
and they were on the network for six months doing reconnaissance uh, unbeknownst to the to the client. And uh, they were very very patient, and uh, they specifically wanted um, to fraudulently sort of change wiring instructions. We call them a business email compromise, and they waited for a three day weekend. It was a holiday weekend. They knew that the CFO, because they had access to his email and to his personal calendar, they knew that he was going to be in the Caribbean with his family. They knew that it, it was very loose in terms of the communication structure and the approval structure on how to get wires approved and changed. And so they sent an email from the CFO's email while he was in the Caribbean on a Friday afternoon to his assistant saying that one of their larger steel uh, suppliers had changed their banking information. and. Uh, that she needed to change the wiring instructions and get the wire out that day. And so she did. Uh, she didn't go to see if uh, she, you know, was this legitimate or ask for any approvals. And so she wired $800,000 out uh, that day. And uh, again, it was a three-day weekend. Tuesday morning, you know, the, the supplier called saying, we didn't receive your wire. Where is it? And then they knew something was up. And the money was gone by that point. Uh, it turns out it had gone to a, uh, a former Soviet bloc country and uh, they weren't going to get it back. And so I always try to ask companies, you know, in that case, it was an $800,000 mistake and uh, an $800,000 wire. And so, you know, ha- how many widgets do you have to make? How many contracts do you have to sell to make that $800,000 back? And I think that's when the dollars and cents of it become real because it's generally, um, you know, it's a it's a lot lost. And so, we had a, a separate issue with a software company, a very large software company. They were attacked. They had a very late reaction to the to the breach, and so it was a very uncoordinated response. They did not have an incident response plan in place, and so much of the data that the attackers stole was corrupted, was not ever recovered. Um, they paid about $175,000 in a ransom demand. Again, they only received some of their data back. And, you know, that when the investigation sort of ran its course, we have found that the attacker, they actually stole way more uh, than they believed that they took and that they were still in the network. So they had maintained persistent access and uh, their plan was to come back and to conduct a separate attack months later, thinking that the uh, the attackers were not still in the network. So, you know, it goes to show that these are not acute responses. You don't just have an attack and then recover from it and move on. It's really a constant process of managing this risk, which we'll talk a little bit more about. I'd say lastly, there was a dual purpose sort of supply chain manufacturer. So they make things for the military, but they also, the defense industrial base, but they also make it for private industry. And the attacker was on their network for nine months and, un, you know, completely unbeknownst to the company. And uh, their crown jewels, you know, they, they make a certain widget better than anybody on the globe. And unfortunately for them, uh, they found out about the attack. They stopped the breach. Uh, they, they were unable to determine what was stolen. And about three years later, a competitor was found in China uh, with the exact same product design. And, uh, and they were significantly undercut on their price in the market. And so they lost considerable market share. And uh, it's believed that it was done, you know, by the Chinese and done to to gain market share and to be able to take that technology without having to, you know, purchase it legitimately. So, you know, those are I, I could give you dozens more stories. It's just a it's a super pervasive issue that I think companies, whether they want to or not, they're going to have to think consistently about it. it's going to it's going to become a top uh, a top risk to most businesses and, and already is. It's just are they aware of it? Yeah. And I, and I hate to hear that your clients went through that. And I feel like uh, it's just so important to highlight it there because, 
you know, given the the complications around the legal environment of of seeking, you know, repercussions or the geopolitical environment as well between you know U.S. and China relations, it sounds like that, that for right now the best course of action that people can take is to really address it themselves to an extent. And I, I think that you know quite often clients often feel that these events are terrible and it's horrible that this is happening to some people. But I think, you know, even I'm guilty of the, of the, of the idea or the belief that it'll never happen to me or nobody will ever try and, you know, breach our computer network at home or, or anything like that. Or I'm sure a lot of business owners probably assume the same thing, but like you said, I mean, that that's really kind of the ultimate fallacy in all of this is, this, is just, you're kind of letting your guard down because in this day and age, I mean, really everyone uh, you can be uh, taken advantage of in that regard. So now that we've kind of uh, spent some time talking about the issues and the reality of kind of the world that we live in now, let's talk about some of the ways that both individuals and companies can help uh, remedy those uh, those risks. And so just maybe looking at, you know, for either you know, myself or my parents or you know, any individual client, one of the, some of the things that we can do to pre- you know, prevent a cyber attack uh, risk and, and any uh, tips and advice in that regard for uh, individuals and families, I think would be very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So we could spend days talking about things you could do to become more aware of attacks, prevent attacks, recover from attacks. But I think some some very basic uh, things. The first is just to really educate yourself on the threat. There's a lot of ways to do this. There are just gobs of data online about attacks and what's happening and how it's happening. How are people being compromised? And there's news sources out there about that. And we're happy to share that with folks. But attackers are predominantly successful because their victims are naive, ignorant, not paying attention. And so the user is the the absolute weakest link in this entire problem. And so the reason I say that I don't know what the statistic is, but I'd be shocked if it's anything less than 95% of attacks are conducted with spear phishing emails. And so if an attacker wants to, they will create a very crafty email with an attachment that you need to open or a hyperlink you need to click on in the email. And that's how most attacks start. And so I just tell people, be on guard. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so when you open an email and something seems out of place, they're on vacation. They never email on vacation. Why are they emailing me? My dad's emailing me. He never talks like that. Why is he, why is he typing like that? And if it seems out of place, it's probably out of place and don't click on it. So I'd say educate yourself on the threat. That's, uh, that's probably first and foremost. I tell people passwords are pretty critical. Invest in password management tool like LastPass. There's, 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 five or six predominant, and they're free. Uh, you, there's paid for ones, but there's free ones out there that help you to manage all your passwords. Too many people have all their passwords are written down on a sheet of paper or all their passwords are on a spreadsheet that's completely you know, in the clear and unencrypted on their desktop. You know, Don't save your passwords in the notes section of your iPhone. Don't save them on a password on your desktop in a file called passwords. Get a password management tool to just be smart about how you manage access to your life, access to everything you do online. Maybe two other things, stay current on all your devices and the updates. So when your iPhone says that it needs to update with new software, accept it and update it. When your Microsoft computer or your Apple computer has updates, install those updates. Those updates are driven by the manufacturer. So Apple or Microsoft or and they're many times they are patching security fixes that need to get fixed so that attackers have one less way to compromise you. 
And then lastly, and I think this is this is really critical, is enabling multi-factor authentication wherever you can. Obviously, the most sensitive sites that you visit and use, you should enable multi-factor authentication. So your banking site, your credit card sites, any uh, health-related data. So if you have a login to a major medical system and it has all your healthcare-related information, you have the choice in, in the settings as you log in to use dual-factor authentication. And all that means is when you log in, they're going to text you a code and you need to put that code in along with your password in order to get in. The reason that's so critical is because attackers, they can't have access to your cell phone. They may have access to your computer, but they don't have access to your cell phone. And so it just makes it exponentially harder for an attacker to to work around multi-factor or dual-factor authentication. But it's something that you have to elect into. And so, you know, I have it on all of our banking sites and wealth management and all that stuff. So I think that's a pretty helpful, helpful tool as well. Yeah, I think this is the uh, the moment of, of the show where I tell the audience just to uh, thank them again for their patience and cooperations with all the hoops they have to jump through for us and, and cybersecurity and getting PIN numbers texted them after they put in a password. And I know a lot of that can be cumbersome and it seemed like um, kind of redundant with all the extra steps uh, that we're taking. But I think to your point, Evan, we're just trying to do everything we can to make sure that we're keeping all the other bad actors out. So definitely makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I think, and on that point, mm-hmm. On that point, Jack, security and convenience are always inversely proportionate. So if you want to be secure, it's going to be inconvenient. Mm-hmm. But if you want it to be convenient, it will not be secure. And that, But that's the constant struggle that we face as individuals. It's a constant struggle that companies face, which is all my employees are complaining about how many times they get texted code that they have to put in or they got to go do this or got to go do that. They have to take trainings. They have – well – it's inconvenient, but it's making our enterprise more secure. And uh, again, those are just directly, you know, inversely proportionate. It's funny you bring up that point about convenience because I remember there was that a breach of that company that has a lot of uh, social security numbers associated with it several years ago. And Equifax, yeah. Equifax, that was it. And the way that the hackers, to my understanding, were able to breach Equifax was the all the Latin American employees uh, that worked for Equifax had one password that every single employee used, and that was password one. So that might have been convenient, but password one was the reason why the hackers were able to get access to all that information. So I think that just kind of comes with the territory and just kind of the reality of the world that we live in now. And so you mentioned companies as well. What what, what can uh, companies, and if I'm a, a business center you know, with a manufacturing company with a couple hundred employees, what can I do to help, help protect my company from something that maybe some of your clients have dealt with before in the past? There's really sort of, this is not going to solve every company's problem, but there's really three main buckets that I drive people to think about, which are people, processes, and technology. And so just a a couple things around people. Obviously, you've got your employees, you have your vendors, you have customers. So employees, as it pertains to cybersecurity, they need to be educated on what to be looking for, what not to click on. Um, It needs to be constantly vigilant with employees on educating them about attacks and what they can do to stop them. Vendors... I spend a lot of time talking with companies about their vendor partnerships. So things like they need to partner with the right managed services provider, for instance. So who manages all the IT for the company? It's oftentimes outsourced to an MSP, a managed service provider. Who are the software providers they're relying on? What law firms do they work with? We talk about insurance agencies. Are they working with people that have a depth of understanding around data breaches and they're properly protecting against it? There's a, a client who reached out to me, a matter of fact, last week, and they said that their IT vendor was hacked. And 
come to find out, they were offline for about eight days and all of their invoicing system was tied into this managed services provider. And so they were not able to invoice customers, receive any payments, issue, you know, any invoices. And so it was very, very damaging in the busiest season for them. It was extremely damaging to their business. And so those vendors, the companies have to establish proven ways to, for instance, change or alter payment information with vendors. Like we talked about business email compromises. So thinking a lot about your vendor base is critical because that's where a lot of attacks start. And then lastly, customers, The obviously things like changing and wiring information. Well, your customers need to know that you're never going to change or alter wiring information without having an offline communication with them. You're going to call them. You're going to text them. You're going to let them know that something, hey, we, we've changed our banking relationship so you can you can trust us when we send that stuff to you. I talked about that's people maybe process. So just some processes. Again, we can talk about a ton of processes. I always encourage companies to build an incident response plan. I have multiple free tools to help people, companies think about what are they going to do before, during, and after a breach. And so building those plans often exposes areas of weakness for a company that they can then go focus on. But build a plan, practice the plan, update the plan, and test it. Run exercises that we'll do a lot of times with clients on thinking about breaches. In terms of processes, do you know do phishing training for employees. They need to know that they might get an email that looks suspicious. It may come from an attacker. It may come from their boss because the company's con- you know conducting phishing training and making employees more aware of attacks. Again, that two-factor authentication is pretty critical. So we always talk about multi-factor authentication on wiring. So any wire over $10,000, the CFO can't be the sole person to approve it. He's got to get approval from somebody in the AP group on the accounting team. There has to be multiple people looking at wiring changes to make sure that if there's a compromise on the network, that we're, we're not being compromised with it. So, you know, I say on processes, you know, a really good partner can walk you through what would make a company a lot more secure in putting all the different processes in place that really will catch a lot of attacks and stop them before they become catastrophic. And so finding those right partners is, is critical. Technology is that last piece, you know, Technology is critical to every business. Again, the security and convenience argument is constant. And so having a proper you know, internal and external resources to guide you through what's the appropriate technology, how do we manage that technology tightly and use it to conduct business and be profitable, but also to fend off attackers. And then, you know, I think lastly, we talk about, I mentioned law firms, insurance firms that are actually placing cyber liability insurance to transfer that the risk of a breach to a carrier, but also forensic services firms. So these are the actual, I'd call them the medics that show up, you know, at the scene of the crime, you know, when there's gunshots and there's chaos. These are the forensic services firms are the ones that show up to actually respond to and remediate the attack off the company network. And so knowing who those partners are going to be ahead of the breach is critical. So I tell people, know who the data breach counsel is you're going to use. Know your insurance brokerage firm and carrier so that you you know quickly how to get to the carrier to respond to an attack. And know the forensic services firm you're going to use. Already have discussions with them. Know them on a first-name basis because um, the worst position you can be in is never having thought about a breach, and then it happens. And you're, you're fumbling your way through it trying to figure it out. So, And I think for companies, most importantly, this is a process. This is not done overnight. We, we talk with a lot of companies about safety initiatives and keeping employees safe. And safety is the exact same way. Safe, you're never there. You've never arrived. And so you're constantly working to become a safer environment. Well, cybersecurity is the exact same way. 
you're working to make your business as profitable as possible, but also the safest place from a cybersecurity hygiene standpoint and being able to respond to a breach. It's never done. And so if it's a priority and if if this is driven from the top down, employees are going to follow. They're going to close the gaps within a company. They're going to identify, respond, and recover from attacks really quickly. So. Yeah. I think that's so helpful because I think oftentimes, and I'm, I'm guilty of this just as much as anyone, is that the whole cybersecurity world does seem pretty overwhelming and, and daunting. And the fact that it you know, it's changed so much, it almost kind of seems like there's just too much to try and understand of, of what you can do uh, to, to remedy those risks. But I think you were able to lay out perfectly in a simple way how both families and companies can just take those first simple steps at mitigating those risks. And like you said, it's a, it's never, it's not a one and done exercise. It's an ongoing process and it's just um, the reality of the world that we live in now. And it's probably not going to go away anytime yeah. soon. That's just kind of the reality of it. So with that said, Evan, was there anything? No, I, else? I, yeah. I do believe that this, uh, I believe this threat is, uh, will outlive all of us. Mm-hmm. I think this will, this will be here long, long after we're gone. So I think it's something we all have to address. Yeah. And you gave us some great ways in, in being able to do so. And Evan, just wanted to say again, cannot appreciate your time and, and participation on the show today. I just wanted to remind the audience as well that if anyone has a question regarding anything that we've talked about or you'd like to have a conversation with, with Evan on a, um, a more in-depth level, if there's any business insurance needs or cybersecurity needs that you may have in that regard, I know he'd be more than happy to uh, discuss that with you. But if you have any questions following today's show, please feel free to email it to me at jack.butler at ubs.com. And uh, we look forward to speaking in soon. Thanks. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ, in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products and services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at ubs.com slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC.